Grassroots Community Network is now available to podcast. Enjoy all your favorite programming, whether you are making the commute to or from work, enjoying a jog through the mountains, or just hanging around the house. And don't forget that Grassroots offers over 4,000 shows on demand on our webpage, www.grassrootstv.org. Simply use the search tool in the upper right corner to locate your content. There are many ways to connect with your community. For podcasts, visit our homepage on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. All direct links, including a direct link to subscribe to our RSS feed, can be found under the search bar on our homepage. And remember, you are Grassroots Community Network. Please consider contributing by visiting our website at www.grassrootstv.org or by calling us at 970-925-8000. Thank you. The Thrift Shop of Aspen. Making grants to Roaring Fork Valley organizations and providing scholarships to Valley High School students through sales of donated goods. Located in Aspen between the fire station and Beaches Cafe. Welcome to another episode of Law and Politics in Aspen. Before we begin, I'd just like to thank our sponsor, the Thrift Store of Aspen. Thank you so much for your support. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we had a, a show called Faith in the Roaring Fork Valley, and that was more about people's private relationship to God and to a specific organized religion, a church, or a temple. And that was the theme of the, uh, couple weeks epi the episode a couple weeks ago. We're changing frames a little bit here today. It's still about religion, but today I want to focus more on the public intersection. To what extent should religion and, and uh, biblical language kind of seep through our public infrastructures? And to what extent should it be totally private? And there's probably no better guest, especially in Aspen, to have than Rabbi David Siegel. He's a rabbi, but in addition to being a rabbi, he's also a scholar, very well learned in the classics we were just speaking before the show. So I think he'll be a very uh, intelligent voice on this important subject. Rabbi, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I want to start out by kind of asking a hypothetical, and I would love for you to weigh in on it. You've got an Aspen High School English teacher. The first assignment he wants to um, give his students is to read the book of Job. Now, when you hear something like that, does that strike you as he should really keep that separate? There are a lot of non-believers, people who don't necessarily believe either um, in the Hebrew Bible or the four Gospels stay away, or no, this is one of the most important pieces of arguably literature ever written. Abraham Lincoln consulted it more than any other work in the Bible during the Civil War. What's kind of, what would be your reaction to something like that? Uh, I normally like to take both sides of an issue okay. and like wrap them up, but in that so one, you were I'm, a lawyer in another yeah, life as well. <laughs> but I'm really firmly on the side of yes, we should be studying it, and and I do think Bible should be taught in schools, but as literature, especially. And um, I think actually, I actually have been saying this. I'm teaching a class right now, an adult education class, and we're looking at some famous translation errors in, in like the standard English translations mm -hmm. of the Bible and that lead to misconceptions about what it actually says. And one of the articles I started the class with was Robert Alter, who is a Bible scholar, I think he's at UCLA still, and really wrote the book on the art of biblical narrative, was one of those famous ones. And he says that we should see the Bible as literature, treat it as literature, and that is not a demotion, that's mm -hmm. an elevation. And I was just saying to the class today, 
to see it as literature means to really understand that it's grappling with the human questions that we're still grappling with and that we can also better understand what I'll call the author's intent and the author's own agenda and own struggles when we see it that way. The problem is we often approach it, it's so polarizing because we sort of approach it as, as if we already know what it says and what it means and often we're not, we're not that correct about that and that it will surprise us if we actually read it. There's, there's, these, there's a lot of studies that show that Americans love to say that we love the Bible and as a people, we love like to own. Like Donald Trump. <laughs> we love to own. We can talk about that later. We love to own copies right. of the Bible. Like the average American home has four copies I read recently. But people don't actually read it that much. And there's some studies now coming out about how, what happens to people who actually read it on their own. Some surprising findings that they tend to be, maybe what you expect, they tend to harden their position against abortion and homosexuality, but they also tend to be much more... Um, fiscally liberal, sort of like supportive of social programs, mm -hmm. helping the poor, helping the homeless, which sounds a lot like the Catholic Church's classic positions, pro-life and pro-war and you know, pro on poverty kind of mm -hmm. approach. Um, so my answer is, yes, we need to study these books. And just like we should be studying the classics, they're part of the fabric of our civilization. And to be, I think, a good citizen, to be a, really a a, a human being in our society, you should have this foundation. That's, that's my view. So when I was in law school, we had um, an interesting class just on a pretty interesting case, specifically in the state of Maine. In the 19th century, uh, there was a teacher kind of with similar sentiments as you that just wanted to teach the Bible, not to necessarily convert people or proselytize just as literature, but there was a Catholic in the, uh, the classroom and his or her parents were very offended because they don't use the King James Bible. The, oh, the, the Bible yeah. he was using, he catches them a different text, and they felt like this was an unconstitutional establishment of religion. Would you be sympathetic to that viewpoint? Because even within Christianity, there's a divide about even whether to use the King James Bible in the first place. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all, I, I'm smirking because it's a little bit funny because we tend to paint like religious people as, as one, you know, with one brush, but there's so and much diversity but, yeah. Yeah, within, and that's a good example. Um, I would be, I would be sympathetic, but I would also urge them to understand this is not a catechism class. This is not religious instruction. This is, and and for the teacher to be really transparent about, this is the text we're using, mm -hmm. and this is where it comes from. This is this particular, you know, this is the Protestant canon, or right. you know, here's what the Catholic canon would be. And I started my class this time, as I do in a number of different settings, with just a rundown of. When people say the Old Testament, that's actually different than what we call the Hebrew Bible. It's the same 39 books, depending on exactly how you count or don't separate some of those books that are split in two, but they're in a different order, and the order matters. It actually says something different about right. the kind of narrative arc, but you know, people use those terms interchangeably, and the point is to educate and be clear about where we're coming from. So you're a Jewish rabbi in Aspen. Um, you deal with a lot of Jewish congregants, obviously. If one of their children went to public school and they were assigned the four Gospels, would you sympathize with them kind of feeling alienated or you would tell them, listen, it's just good to understand even if you never subscribe to his teachings? I would say, I would probably say the latter. You know, this is important to study. I took uh, a course in college, Old Test uh, sorry, New Testament and Christian Origins, one of my favorite classes. And I'll tell you, the, the professor, the first lecture, asked us, what are the first century texts we can go to, primary sources we can go to if we want to learn about Jewish life 
in, uh, in the Middle East in the first century. So people think for a minute, okay, Josephus. Yeah, okay, there's one people know about. Philo is another one that comes up. And then we're kind of silent, stumped. He says, the Gospels. The Gospels are Jewish texts written by people who understood themselves as Jews for their right. fellow Jews. Okay, that's an important piece. And I mean, as long as it's not presented as like, this is, the, this is God's inerrant truth and you have to believe this, but you can teach it in a, in a what I'll call a respectful, mm -hmm. critical way. Um, and I think that certainly has its place there. And I, I would urge such a student to study hard because they're actually going to find things that will surprise the Christians in the room probably right. if they really read it closely. So, so yeah, I think that has a place in the classroom. So not to make this too not much Not in the science classroom, yeah. but in the theology so or not to make literature this, classroom. Not to make this too much of a, a, just a, a law school classroom or conversation, but one other fact pattern which I think is interesting and I'd love for you to weigh in on. Um, and I don't think the, the law is settled. I think it, it changes in different states and different courts have uh, interpreted differently. Someone is convicted, they go to jail, Jewish, Muslim, but they still want to observe either kosher laws if they're Jewish or halal laws if they're Muslim. Now, this is an extra cost to the state. Not only do they have to provide meals, they have to provide very specific meals under specific circumstances. In fact, this is one of the issues that came up in the 2012 election. When Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts, he didn't want to spend the extra money under Medicare to fund uh, specific kosher meals for, not necessarily in the context of prison, but of Jewish people in hospitals. So I ask you, hmm. Specifically, I guess prison, but we could also talk generally in hospitals. Do you think the state has not only the right to allow the free exercise of religion, but should also burden the extra cost to go along with it? Or if, or if somebody, uh, you know, commits a crime that they get, you know, there's a reduction in their liberty and the state shouldn't necessarily be paying for them to either carry out their Jewish or Muslim faith. That's, that's a really good question, and I don't know that I have a definite opinion on it right now. Um, I think... Part of it depends on, the prison example is interesting, because part of it depends on what you think the mission of prison is. And if you're really going to get behind the idea that it's rehabilitation, there should be an element of respecting the whole person that I could make an argument then for respecting religious differences. And will there be people who abuse it? Probably. Mm -hmm. um, and, but our system is also built on allowing for some number of abusers in order to protect you know, either innocent or genuine people. Um, so there's that side of it. And then I was just having a friendly debate with uh, a neighbor of mine who's a friend also, and he was, uh, he's very into Ayn Rand and that kind of libertarian mm -hmm. approach and, and shared a way that she framed the idea of rights. You can never have a right that burdens someone else. Okay. It was an interesting way of framing it. I don't know that I totally agree because I do think we have obligations to each other. In that sense, I do think we have burdens based on right. living in as humans in society, but just think of it that way. And I, he was saying around healthcare, like you can't say healthcare is a right because you're, what are you gonna force the doctor to do an operation at gunpoint? I mean, I get where he's coming from. It's a little bit of an extreme example maybe, but, but that's the question about rights and responsibilities and freedom from versus freedom to, just think of it that way. You know, I think there could also be some creative funding models where you actually say the state wants to facilitate it, but it's gonna go to Muslim community, Jewish community, and say, yeah. let's raise some extra money for this. I know lots of rabbi colleagues who, and, and other clergy who, part of their ministry includes prison ministry. I think that's one of the most profound, important jobs that clergy can do. Difficult work. But really puts to the test all the things we preach about redemption and yeah, you know, yeah. those kinds of questions, sin and redemption, and what's really going on in human nature deep inside. But 
So, I mean, I've talked around the issue. I, I have to think about that more to, to see how I feel. Um, I think I would lean toward wanting to support those choices. Um, but you are sensitive that there's finite resources and yeah, that. Yeah, and I do think in general, like, this is what I was saying to the same friend the, with the Ayn Rand conversation, where I come at political conversation is that I, I there's a sort of values-based foundation that I'm coming from, and if government's the best way to, to embody those values, great. If not, let's find another way. I'm not an ideologue about, like, it should be government doing X, Y, Z or not. I'm sort of more results-oriented right. based on values. Um, but that, that, that gets into kind of the big picture question of, you know, what place does faith really have in the public square? But so, so far we've talked about uh, when religion is playing, not positive in the sense of doing good, but a literal role in a public sphere. Now I want to talk about the opposite right. extreme, its absence, which uh, I know alienates people out there. There are a lot of religious people that choose to homeschool their children mm -hmm. for these kinds of reasons. So let's say you have a, an atheist-leaning English teacher that doesn't want to ever teach the Bible or something like the Book of Job. Uh, they just think it's alienating. They don't even necessarily believe in God. But instead, they want to focus on the famous Greek plays, which some of them, you know, they wanted to deify men. They wanted to make gods out of men, which is directly contradicted by a lot of Judeo-Christian teachings. Are you sympathetic to people who feel like religious people who are so alienated by the public sphere, the lack of God in the public sphere, that they almost want to hide from it? Or does it still make sense to have your child learn an alternative philosophy, even if it doesn't perfectly align with your Judeo-Christian principles? Uh, I'm sympathetic when religion is treated as uh, sort of a um, <clears throat> like a sign of lower intelligence or Assign, like if religious affiliation is treated as something to sneer at. Right. But I, I think that you, know, you, you raise the idea of limited resources. Well, that's true in a curriculum, too. Like you can't study everything. Right. Uh, but of course, I think that the Greek classics deserve a place at the table, too. Or at a younger level, Harry Potter, even though there's the whole witch. Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's interesting <laughs> to me, too. I was, we were in an airport once years ago, my wife and I, and she was, we were both avid Harry Potter fans. And okay. she was reading one of the books, and... Um, flight attendant or someone working a counter actually sort of walked over and glanced at it and said, are you a Christian? My wife was like, well, no. <laughs> the woman said, because that's witchcraft and you shouldn't be reading that. And on the one hand, I want to I respect diversity of views. On the other hand, I just think that's like, that's what you want to spend your time on, like boycotting Harry Potter. <laughs> right. Because that actually, if you look at her, if you read it closely, not even that closely. It's a lot about values and respecting your friends mm -hmm. and fighting evil. I mean, I know of clergy who've used it in you know, teaching biblical and religious lessons. So maybe I got a little nah. too upset about that example because I happen to very, really like Harry Potter. But um, So back to the other question. I mean, I, I hear that a lot. And I think part of the appeal of Donald Trump right now and, and to some extent Ted Cruz as well is from particularly evangelical Christians who, who I, I can't figure out why else they would support Donald Trump necessarily, but who do feel right or wrong, but feel like American society is not interested or even is dismissive of their religious way of life. I, I do think that's really out there among people. And the flip side is to be religious in a pluralistic country, you have to be, you're, you're sort of, if you're gonna bring your religion into the public square, you have to be willing to say, my religion is not the only true faith. And that's sort of like the deal we make when we <laughs> right. enter this, this social contract in America. And that's hard for certain, um, 
I guess fundamentalist is a word we could use. I don't know if any of the labels we use for that. Right. But um, evangelical or fundamentalist, and they're not the same thing even. But so you know, if it's if it's going to be about imposing your religion on the public square, we have to put limits on that. If it's going to be about being transparent about the fact that that's motivating you to support certain policies in the public square, that's reasonable. And actually, we should be more transparent about that because we pretend that you can check your religious commitments at the door when you walk into the public square, and that's just, that's just not how humans work. So better to be transparent about mm -hmm. it and upfront so we, so we all are talking about the same thing. Um, and you know, if we can't come to the same page, at least we know mm -hmm. what page we're on. So, yeah, so not to make this too much about myself, but just kind of introducing my own education. I went to public school here in Aspen High School. I went to the University of Chicago, which some people deride as a very atheist institution. And there was no kind of religious angle. And as I kind of embraced faith, or, faith later in life, I did. Like, for example, if you're reading a Faulkner novel or focusing on a Shakespeare play or a Dostoevsky novel, I think there are, obviously, anyone reading a naked reading of it, real religious roots in a lot of those, you know, works. But... A lot of times in a public school or some of these universities, they don't try to trace, okay, Absalom, Absalom, where exactly did Faulkner get this in the Bible? Do you think that's appropriate? Or again, is that another example of if a teacher is assigning a Shakespeare play and wants to you know, focus in on the few quotes from scripture or verses, that's it's just going to necessarily alienate? Or should we be reading a compatible, okay, here's the Bible and here's the text and we should see how they're married? Yeah, I think we should be reading it everything that's there and relevant as a source. And I think we should encourage people to be mature adults about those things. And, and just because it's coming from the Bible doesn't mean someone's ramming something down your throat. Right. Like the, so many, like Shakespeare's a great example, so much. And Shakespeare and the King James version of the Bible in particular have, have had dramatic effect on mm -hmm. the English language that we still speak now. That's just one example. Uh, so much of Western literature is informed by those ideas. and. So I think it's self-defeating to, to push that aside. You're missing right. out on the fullness of the tradition. So I'm, I'm old-fashioned in that sense that I think we should be, but I'm also I mean, old-fashioned and also liberal because you know, we should include all voices that are relevant and, and speak to allusions and, and um, I guess, intertextuality is right. the academic word for it. Because I remember, you know, I, I was a history major. That's my great love. And we'd, for example, be reading Lincoln-Douglas debates or something Abraham Lincoln said, and everyone would say how eloquent his... It was when he had this famous like house divided yeah. line, but that comes right from the Book of Matthew. So sometimes they don't want to make those links, but yeah. I think it helps. Or... Yeah, I, part of it is like one of my one of my big aspirations is intellectual honesty. Like, and some of all, that's the best we can do because we don't have, none of us has all the answers, or even when it comes to like interpreting the Bible, we can't know for sure some of what some of it means because at least in the Hebrew, there's some words that appear only once mm -hmm. or just aren't attested otherwise. So. We make our best guess, and we're, we have to be just honest about our own agenda when we come to reading it, because we all have some interpretive lens through which we're reading it. And the best we can do is try to be honest about that. And I think intellectual honesty goes a long way if we can cultivate that value. Um, so the following topic I want to bring up is a really loaded subject. We could probably spend one, two whole episodes on it. But I just want to speak about Islamic terror and its relationship to the Islamic religion. To what extent, when you turn on television and you see what happens in Sam? Bernardino, or the person who took a, a cop in Philadelphia, his life. To what extent do you think that is based on the principles, the teachings of the Quran, or is that not true Islam? Do you take like the liberal or conservative perspective with respect to Islamic terror? I usually, I have to start by saying I'm not a scholar of Islam, and I think 
that that limits the seriousness with which you should take my perspective on this, except as advice which more expertise in. Um, I think that any religion is far more than the sum of the words in its holy books. And that I, I did take a class in rabbinic school on the Quran, so I have what mm -hmm. I'll say is a very rudimentary introductory knowledge, <clears throat> and read in English translation, by the way, so I have, I have no grasp of the, the Arabic. Um, so that said, you know, you can look, you can look in the Torah in, in the Hebrew Bible for some pretty, uh, what I'll call genocidal moments, if you will, commands for Joshua to lead the people into land. That's what liberal Muslims will say. Destroy all the uh, people who live there, right? That's one example. The point is that that's not, that's not, that's not a sort of a live text from which we take, mm -hmm. um, take as a paradigm or take as a command for acting today. And so to say, well, that's what the Quran says, is misunderstanding a faith tradition that, like rabbinic Judaism, has a long history of interpretation and reinterpretation. Um, I do think that there is a problem with the way certain, certain sects of Islam or certain fringe groups of Islam are using the, or employing those interpretations to be death-dealing instead of life-affirming uh, and exclusivist, that kind of thing. Um, and I, but I also think that that kind of reform only comes from within, and I am happy to hear, and, I've been re and, and I seek this out, granted, but I, but I have been reading a lot about a number of different groups working on reform within the world of Islam. There is a group calling itself Muslim Reform Movement, which is a group of scholars and activists who are trying to make a statement about Islam being consistent with democracy and universal human rights, and you know, a list of other that you and I would easily sign off on. Right. And, uh, and I applaud those efforts, and I think there's a limit to the extent to which an outsider can, mm -hmm. can A, judge, except based on how we see it play out, and, and B, even know, unless we're scholars of that, what, what the inner dynamics are. So I do think we have to be careful. That said, you know, um, after, after that attack, I think it was after the San Bernardino attack, there were what maybe was the New York Daily News, New York Post, one of them had like a Muslim terror headline, a big front page. And I saw a morning show with a, a rabbi, a priest, and a Muslim leader, and uh, whom I, I respect, all of them whom I, or, whom I respect, but they all agreed like it's, we can't say Muslim terror on the, like that's grouping everyone together. We shouldn't do that. And I found myself not entirely agreeing with that because on the one hand, that there is a network of terror that, that at least roots itself, its self-perception is Muslim. And it's, it's small numbers within the Muslim world, but it's, it's there. And I think we should be willing to say it's not all Muslims by any stretch, but we need to look into what's happening through that in the Muslim world. Of course, if you make it too much about religion, you forget that there are other political agendas right. at play that actually trump religion. By the same token, when, when a white supremacist walks into a black church and shoots nine people at Bible study, I think to not ask, well, to what extent was some version of Christianity motivational for him? Mm -hmm. uh, we have to look at that, too. And, and by the way, the FBI does. I mean, they have <laughs> white supremacists and Muslim terror on their watch list right now. And so. To group everyone together, no, of course not. But to be like again, is intellectually honest right. about what the factors are, 
Um, but to say if we got, I don't know what the plan would be like, get rid of Islam? That, like, <laughs> right. What is that? That's but to make the contrarian a more conservative argument, there are a yeah, couple of things. Please. Like, first, that Judaism and Christianity oftentimes advocate for self-defense, but there are a lot of passages within the Quran that tell Muslims to offensively, not offense in terms of it offends like the senses or offends someone's sense of morality, but literally to go on offense almost in the way a sports team does, not to be crude, but to offensively, you know, seek jihad. It says literally things like cast terror into the hearts of the unbeliever in ways that, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, it's more historically confined, okay, in this battle to reclaim the Holy Land, Jews should do X, but not to literally go out there and hurt anybody who's not Jewish. Well, another thing to understand about the Quran, and again, I think I'm stretching the limits of my knowledge sure. about it, but it's also historically contextualized, and um, you can, from what I understand, you can understand aspects of the Quran, certain passages in the Quran, as coming from different life stages in in Muhammad's journey, and you know why why it's on one hand says some very complimentary things about Jews, on the other hand some very nasty things about Jews, has to do with the historical reality of when, at one point, Jews were allies of his in fighting Arab pagans on. Another point, Jews refused to fight with him, right. and so he cast them as an enemy. So I think it's a reminder that we need to understand all scripture mm -hmm. as historically contextualized, including the Quran, even if it's even if it's not doesn't present that way in the, in its genre, if I will, because it's it's uh, it's not a narrative style in the same way that that the Hebrew scriptures are. That's true, but it still comes out of a historical time. I think it's important to keep those on the forefront. So the last subject I want to bring up, and I eventually actually like to bring it up to constitutional law at the very end, but even the divisions within Judaism on the Orthodox uh, school, especially the ultra-Orthodox, they think all of the laws that Moses you know, gave us thousands of years ago should be uh, as relevant today as they were thousands of years ago, and we should find a way to translate our lives today to make it align with what he said on Sinai. More liberal reform, uh, Rabbi, although you weigh in yourself, say it's kind of a breathing, living thing. We have to find a way for to accommodate our own lives with what was said thousands of years ago. Where do you weigh in on that debate? Should nothing have changed, or we should never ignore what Moses said, but our life is obviously very different than his life thousands of years ago? Yeah, well, I am a reform rabbi, and right. so I certainly come down on the liberal or progressive side of that, um, whatever's the right term to use, I don't know. Right. But you know, one of the things we, we say and think about is that ours is a tradition of change that has always been adapting and um, adopting thoughts and customs mm -hmm. even of the surrounding culture uh, as we adapt to survive and thrive. You know, you can look at the, when the Second Temple is destroyed by the Romans in 70 and that transition from temple-centered, sacrificial cults, priesthood, mm -hmm. to this thing where rabbis taught disciples in, you know, corners of the earth. Mm -hmm. That's a drastic shift in what Judaism was. And there's not a biblical basis for the rabbinic model, right. except that they, they are clever enough to create a kind of interpretive history for themselves and allowed it to survive and reach a new kind of so just model. So in, in your judgment, just to translate it to American politics, if someone, I'm not saying, I'm not of the school, but if someone were to say Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, they were kind of our American Moses, but that was 240 years ago, we need to adapt, the Constitution is breathing. Do you 
Is that what you say? Do you see it the same way in terms of constitutional law? I think about that a lot because there is a certain parallel between. That's why, in all seriousness, Jews yeah. and rabbis make such good lawyers and constitutional. <laughs> I mean, you look at no, the roster of Harvard Law professors. Yeah, I know. And, and a lot of them the have Supreme Jewish Court training. right now too. Um, yeah, and I think you learn to like dissect arguments and right. look at both sides. But I do think there's something about that. And I've been reading a lot about since Scalia's death the, this okay. question of originalism. And I have to full disclosure. I mean, I see it more kind of the originalist, but yeah, there's definitely. And a lot of one of the challenges to that, from my point of view, is that uh, on one level, it's it's impossible for us to know mm -hmm. what the original intent was in every case. But in some cases, we not to cut you off. We are running out of time. But I'm like I said, this could easily be an hour, two-hour conversation. So much and just 28, 29 minutes, whatever it is. Rabbi, thank you so much. Thank you. I look forward to always reading your columns in the Aspen Times. And I hope you continue thank you, thank you. to not just exist within your temple, but the broader community, because you definitely have a very important voice. I appreciate voice. it. Thank you. To be continued. Yeah, In exactly. some form or other. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in. Uh, have a great rest of your day. So long. The Thrift Shop of Aspen. Making grants to Roaring Fork Valley organizations and providing scholarships to Valley High School students through sales of donated goods. Located in Aspen between the fire station and Beaches Cafe. This podcast was brought to you by the Grassroots Community Network. Check out more of your favorite programs, browse our video on demand, and subscribe to our social media channels at www.grassrootstv.org.